So 11 years ago, uh, Lisa and I and the rest of our kiddos, we all drove into town right around uh, December, so it's been about 11 years. First time we actually came to visit, though, was around this time, and uh, there's this crazy guy that uh, seemed super friendly and uh, was immediately one who was kind of just leaning in and saying, hey, I'd love to be, you know, I'm excited about being in a partnership with you, and I actually have this uh, card that he made for me, keep it in my office, and it was just, uh, and he kind of already knew me a little bit. It's got this little soldier on it and just talking about fighting the good fight and being in the battle together. And I would say that we, we fought side by side for the kingdom of God in the, the same foxhole for a long time. And then the Lord decided to send us in different directions. Um, but I want to say this, like, not only is he one of my best friends, but I would not be doing what I'm doing here at Pleasant Valley if he hadn't said something. And actually what he said, I didn't even believe it. Saying, I think you could do this. I'm like, no, 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 no. Um, and so he has that ability um, as a pastor, uh, as a fellow follower of Jesus to look at somebody's heart and life. And I just see there's, it's fun because we've got a lot of people that have come back just to see him today. And I can look across the room and see so many people where he has just basically loved Jesus well himself and has said, hey, follow Follow him too. He's amazing. Um, a lot of the stuff you see around here with our like insane focus on Jesus is because of him. There was this, listen to Jesus, do what he says. Listen to Jesus, do what he says. Listen to Jesus, do what he says. And so we're like, okay, we're going to do it. Um, but so I'm super excited. Some of you don't know him, but uh, Brandon Ziske was a senior pastor here, college pastor here um, for a long time and is now in Texas. But we get the treat of uh, hanging out with him today and having him open God's word. So will you welcome Brandon Ziske with him? I thought I had it out of me. I almost wore a jersey. So I'm, I'm just going to get this out now. Um, oh. This is a special church. In many ways. Being a pastor and Chad can vouch for this and Pastor Joe can vouch for this. We're connected with a bunch of pastors all throughout the nation. And God's got something special here. And it's really beautiful. It's really unique. I'm forever grateful and indebted to my journey here. You have tremendous pastors. Chad's phenomenal because he's strong in the grace. Joe's phenomenal because he's strong in the grace. Dano's phenomenal because he's strong in the grace. There's a lot of you, all of them. <laughs> the board of directors, the governance board, the elders. We've done battle together and still there. It's just, it's a beautiful thing. The heartbeat of this church has always been yes to Jesus. And I love stalking you from a distance. I love seeing <laughs> what God is doing and it's so sweet. And um, as we were flying in, as we were flying in, my wife and I, and it just hit me. I was like, it all started here for me. 
I mean, yeah, God was in pursuit of my life for sure, but I remember, like, I went to Mugby Junction with my 10-year-old son, whom y'all were like, wow, he's 10? I went to Mugby Junction, which was formerly Blue Heron. You dated me there. And I looked across the street at the quad. I don't even know if it's called the quad anymore. And I looked at the third floor, the suite in the corner. I was like, I remember, I remember that room. That was my freshman year right there. And I remember how many nights I was lost and drunk and fighting and how the Lord saved me. And this church poured their life into me, prayed for me even before I was a believer. When I was a college student, invested their lives into me, saw something and pulled me in to allow me to be a pastor here, which is still crazy. <laughs> and I remember going to acoustic and seeing the gospel and understanding the gospel. And, and then like, I remember the chapel, this wasn't here, it was the, the, the worship space, which is now called the chapel sitting in a pew and her, hearing a message on gluttony. And that broke me. We don't preach enough on gluttony. And it's just, this is, this is a special church. And I just want you to know that I dearly love you. I miss you, but I'm so incredibly proud of the yes, to keep going after it. And what I want to do today is get rid of the sentiment because we're not here to catch up, even though that's nice, that's a blessing. We're here to worship Jesus. We're here to be rooted and anchored in the gospel, to move together. And so my heart is as much as I've been encouraged and my wife has been encouraged, our family's been encouraged this week, I want to impart encouragement to you. I want to stir you up. I want to challenge you to keep running hard after Jesus. And so that's what I want to do. I'm going to share with you a message that's been on my heart that the Lord has been convicting me of, a message that I shared with my church and I changed it, tweaked it, and want to say, Lord, use it to move this church to shine brighter for Jesus. So let's pray together. Lord, I thank you. I just thank you, Lord, for your grace and your gospel. It's the power of God for all who believe. Lord, may we never be ashamed of it. May we never grow ashamed of it. May we never grow tired of it. May we never get bored with it. May we never see it as old hat. Lord, help us to always be renewed with it. Lord, even in these moments where we need to pray like David prayed in the Psalms, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. God, I ask that you would do that this morning. Lord, I pray that you would bring about a holy conviction this morning through your grace and through your truth to help, help us to move forward in obedience. Lord, I pray against guilt. I pray against shame. I pray against the spirit of legalism that would want to hear this message and beat themselves up. That's not your heart. You discipline us for good. You discipline us because you love us. And so, Lord, I ask that we would understand the depths of the love of Christ. Holy Spirit, would you reveal that to us? So, Lord, I ask that you would have your way, that you would speak to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful parents, don't look at your kids, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, 
reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The Atacama Desert is one of the most formidable places on earth. It is the driest planet on earth, has no vegetation and no growth because it's said that roughly each year only about one millimeter of rain falls, if you want to call that rain, per year there. They have scientific evidence to prove that actually from 1570 to 1970, it never rained once. The environment that it sits in is the perfect environment to make this area a death zone of vegetation. There is no life there. It is barren. It is a desert wasteland. When I was thinking about the Atacama Desert, like a thought occurred to me. I was like, man, I, this is kind of a good reflection of the state of our world. This is a good depiction of the culture that we live in. Dry. It's a desert full of mirages, lifeless, devoid of anything meaningful and sustaining of life. Our society, friends, like our society is becoming increasingly fearful, increasingly defensive, and ever more aggressive towards one another. Ever increasing contempt at every corner over any issue under the sun. We show contempt now. We celebrate contempt instead of showing honor to others. Our cultural institutions that shape our culture are teaching us, especially our youth, to villainize other people, to trade in love for hatred, to show fear towards other people who aren't like us instead of moving towards them in hospitality, to be full of entitlement instead of serving other people through loving sacrifice. Deep in our hearts, we feel sick about this. We feel a despondency as we all experience this and we all have. The ever-increasing hostility, what do we do? The dishonor and the conflicting ideologies that are constantly being presented in society. Where we realize and we feel it and the world feels it that the idols of this day that have been presented as gods that would give us life are letting us down over and over and over. The constant news cycle of bad news that's being rehearsed 24-7. We're confused and, and fearful over a degrading morality that just seems to be getting grayer and grayer and grayer. And here's the thing. Christians aren't the only people who feel this. People out in the world, in our culture, feel this as well. They start asking questions. Is there a better way to this? They're looking for hope. And the church of Jesus Christ is the very vehicle to present that massive message of hope. Now, I would be completely lying to you if I said, I don't worry about my kids. I got three kids and they're all in school. And like the temptation is I want to take them all, wrap them up, close their eyes, stuff things in their ears and shove them in a closet until they're 25. 
Like I'm like, you want to bubble wrap them. Like you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe the world they live in is just so bad. If they were only there when maybe I was a kid, it's so much better then. And now it's so bad. It's like all of that fear sits there. Like we can feel it. It's palpable. And like, I had to be convicted and rebuked by the spirit of God to remind me like, no, God is sovereign. He's caused each and every one of us to live in our specific places, in our towns, with the jobs and the vocations for such a time as this. But we shouldn't just be looking out at the culture either though, because quite frankly, the last few years has really shown some cracks within the evangelical church church at large, I'm not pinpointing no fingers, but it's like we know and we've seen this, we've heard it, that some churches really need to be asking themselves the question, do we look like Jesus or do we look like the world out there? When people out in the world who don't know Jesus are looking for a better option and they look at the church, do they see Jesus or do they see the world? Pleasant Valley, I want to commend you. They see Jesus here. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't ask the question, what are we looking like? How are we living? Like we need to be asking these questions as a church because if we're not careful, we could easily slip into becoming very much like the world because of fear and hopelessness. We can easily allow cultural values to shape us and to dictate how we live. I mean, it grieves me as a pastor in, in like in my church, my, like what I've experienced over the last few years, like I've known Christian brothers and sisters, Christian parents with their kids and friends and family who no longer talk to each other over issues in culture. And I go, how can that be? We can disagree, but the world will know we're followers of Jesus by our love. We are to be on a different plane, a different level, a different understanding for a different purpose. And so I, I want to say it's like it's important for us as a church to look inside, to not just look at the culture and be like, it's so bad, it's so bad, it's so bad. But it's important for us to do self-examination sometimes in our own hearts because we have to realize that we're prone to wonder, we're prone to slip. We have to ask the question, in whose image are we being conformed into? Are we being conformed into the image of this world and culture or into Jesus Christ? And it's a sad fact, it's a sad fact that there's many churches that look a lot like the Atacama desert with youth in these churches not seeing the life and the power of Jesus Christ embodied within its people so we need to ask these questions how are we living and whose image are we conformed what do we believe how do we follow Jesus in such a time as this? And so I want to make one simple point, and I want to make this clear. In fact, I will give you full permission, write this one down, and you can take a nap, and we'd be good. This one point is a point of self-examination, and it's going to ask a question about how you live, because here it is. The way we live reveals what we believe. The way we live reveals what we believe, and the rest is talk. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power, of love, and self-control. The way you live reveals what you believe. The rest is talk. Belief determines behavior. Jesus even says, like, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, the fruit, right? You will reap what you sow. It's a beautiful thing, but it's also important for us to be examining our own hearts. 
And I love this letter of 2 Timothy. It's Paul's last letter that we know about that he wrote, and he wrote it to a young, uh, young pastor in his 20s, maybe even early 30s, who was pastoring churches in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a really tough culture. It's very much an anti-Christian culture. And when Paul wrote this letter, Paul knew, somehow in his spirit, he knew that this was it. Because towards the end of his letter, he even says, like, I ran my race. He says it in the past tense. He's like, and I'm, I know I'm going to receive the crown. Like, he's knowing that this is his time. And so he's wanting to encourage this young pastor in this culture that is, like, going to be oppressive and persecuting the church. And even wolves in sheep clothing coming into the church, he wants to encourage him, stand firm. He's like, I'm in chains. I'm in chains in this prison cell in Rome. Don't be ashamed of me. Other people in the church have been ashamed of me and they wandered, but don't be ashamed of me. I'm in chains because of Jesus. This is why we're here, to show the message and the love of Christ. And if I'm chained, what's beautiful is the word of God isn't chained. So Timothy, Timothy, you gotta understand, the culture is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. And I know sometimes, like, it's so tempting, right, when we read our Bible to uh, somehow imagine that following Jesus was relatively easy then. They just didn't have, like, all of the tools and technology and all the gadgets. We're like, but it wasn't as hard. They're not, like, you know, coming at you and canceling you and all that kind of stuff. But it's like, in that culture, it was an extremely post or anti-Christian culture. Like, they had a cancel culture. <laughs> they killed you. Even though they would celebrate pluralism, they would celebrate tolerance. Like, hey, you do you. Just don't tell us that there's one way. Any God's fine. All this kind of stuff. I mean, it was gross immorality in Ephesus. And it was in this culture that Timothy is pastoring and his mentor, the person that he looked up to, is about to die. And Paul's like, Timothy, Listen, the culture isn't going to make it easy for you. And I love how he says, it's like, understand this, Timothy, in chapter 3, in the last days. Isn't it fascinating that every generation of Christianity always thought it was the last days? Right? Like, how many times, like, he's, Jesus is coming back. They're like, Paul's like, he's coming back. Like, that's because the mission is urgent and sin is real and Satan warps and holds people captive in sin. Understand this in the last days, Timothy, things are going to get worse. Times of difficulty are coming. People will be full of sin and selfishness. That whole list is there. But the one that troubles me as a pastor is like, verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. He's like, Timothy, yes, the culture on the outside is going to be bad. There's going to be all sorts of things that are out there that are going to make you feel like you want to back up or even be ashamed of following Jesus. But don't be uh, ignorant in the church too. There will be people in the church who will look like followers of Jesus. They have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, they don't believe in the gospel. They're wolves. I don't know about you, but if I was Timothy, I'd be like, I can't do this. Paul, you're leaving me? I don't know what to do. 
But they understood something that we need to understand. How you live reveals what you believe. And what we're going to see in this letter is that what we believe is worth suffering for. What we believe is worth dying for. It's worth giving it all for. It's worth sacrificing for. It's worth disciplining your body for. It's worth looking like a crazy Jesus fanatic in the eyes of this world. That's how they did it. Timothy, there's a type of person that God is looking for. It's a type of person who lives out what they believe. And so what we're going to see is how Timothy is going to be stirred up and encouraged in his faith. Paul's going to spend some time just like, Timothy, remember the gospel. Remember this. And then he's going to say, okay, as you remember this, as you hang on to this belief, this should then inform how you will live. And now I want to be clear. If we don't remember the grace of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel, and we move into the application part, it will be very tempting to see it through a legalistic lens, through guilt and shame. Don't. That's why Paul is very clear of saying, let's talk about the treasure. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 14. I'm not going to read them all. I'm going to summarize them. Timothy, don't be ashamed of me, a prisoner of Christ. I'm in the chains. And he starts talking about the gospel. Remember Jesus. He came. He died. He destroyed death. He became, he showed us grace. He called us out of his own purpose. He abolished death, brought life, immortality to life through the gospel. That's why I suffer as I do, because I'm living and preaching this. Paul would even say later, he's like, any of you who would desire to live a godly life will suffer. It's it's not optional. Like, it will happen. And then he says in verse 13, and this is where I want us to lean in to, he's like, he says to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound teaching. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me. And you can even say seen from me in the faith and love that are Christ Jesus. Timothy, don't lose sight of how I lived in your presence. How, like, I remember that it was God's grace, how my life is for him. Don't lose sight of that. I know you're tempted to be ashamed of me, even though I'm in chains. Like, the way I was living was wrong. Like, this is the direction you're going to be in. Remember this pattern. Like, even a few verses before, he was talking about, like, how the faith that Timothy has is precious, and it's, it's, it's sweet, and it's unique. And he's just like, I remember it also came from your, your mom, and it came from your grandmother. Beautiful picture. Little side note, parents and grandparents, your kids watch you. Your prayers matter. Matter. Follow this pattern that's rooted in the love and faith of Jesus. And this is what he goes into, and I love this. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, he will give you the ability to do this. Guard the good deposit of faith. Guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. Have you ever thought about that? That when you received the gift of life through Jesus, the gospel, that God entrusted the gospel to you. He gave it to you. He's going to give you the Holy Spirit to be empowered so that you could guard it. But the responsibility of guarding that deposit is on you. Timothy, it's going to come. Guard it. 
Hold on to it. White knuckle, firm grip. Don't let it go. All that you can, you hang on to it. You remember this, this good deposit that's there. When I think of the word good deposit, I immediately think of safe deposit boxes. Does anybody here use a safety deposit or a safe deposit box? Anybody? I, 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 I never have, but I always think like there's some kind of crazy treasure in one. And I think of like Mission Impossible or some other spy movie. But it's just like, we all know that what you put into a safe deposit box is something of like great value, right? Like this is a good deposit. That's something that's there. We have the greatest treasure in the whole world that God has entrusted to you. Hold on to it, Timothy. Church, you hold on to it. You guard it. The Holy Spirit will give you the power to do it, but it's on you. I, I had this moment this week as we were there um, walking around Winona. We went to Acoustic Cafe. And also I remembered, oh yeah, this is the place that makes you smell funny when you walk away, right? Like it's a great place, but you got that, like, you know what I'm saying, like that acoustic cafe smell, like it's with you and you can't get rid of it. You got to burn your clothes afterwards. Don't you? Like, but it's, sandwiches are good. Um, as I was, we were meeting some friends there. I, I just walked to the booth. I remember sitting there, like this booth. And my, Chris was like, what are you taking a picture of that? I was like, I was like, this was the booth where the gospel was presented to me. And I said, yes. And it was like this moment where God had to take me all the way back. And I was, I was right now, I was remembering the good deposit. I remember that I was lost in sin and Jesus snapped the chain of death and gave me hope when I was hopeless. And also I'm like, yes, I got to remember that. It's my job to hold on to it. And God will give me the power to guard that. Church, guard that good deposit. The world wants to steal it and kill it from you. John 10, you have an enemy. Do you know that? Like, like not just like, yeah, we're Christians, we got an enemy. <laughs> like, no, do you know you have an enemy who's actively out to steal the gospel from you? to actively steal faith from you so you can't relate to Jesus, to slowly separate yourself from him, to slowly forget him, to slowly get you from maybe going to church maybe twice a month to once every three months, to maybe reading your Bible, like, I don't know, once every six months, not guilty or legalism, but that's what he wants to do. Paul saying to Timothy, it's going to come and you're going to feel that pressure. Hold on, Timothy. The Spirit will do it for you, but you got to guard it. So church, are you hanging on to it? This is a treasure. Do you remember the gospel? Jesus gave us two little parables in Matthew 13 about the beauty of the kingdom of God. One was this person who, who saw this treasure in a field and he was like, oh my goodness. And he, he buries it real quick and he walks away sells all that he has because the value of this treasure far surpasses anything else. And he comes back and he buys that field. How do you see the treasure? Oh, there's another one who saw this pearl of great worth. Same thing. Sells all to go buy that pearl. That's the treasure that's in you. The son of God who knew no sin became sin when we were enemies of God, when we were doubters of God, when we were deniers of God, he sent his son to do for us what we can never do. Mm -hmm. To love you 
when you could care less. Couldn't care less. Chad always corrects me on that. <laughs> well, why don't you then? I heard it. Guard that good deposit. But you can't do that in your own effort. That's the irony. That's where Paul now goes in chapter two, verse one. Timothy, my son, be strong in the grace. Nothing else. You can't stand firm on your own in this culture. You won't. You can't. John 16, 33, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome it. Be strong in the grace, Timothy. Not in your own effort, not in your own valley, not in your own best intentions, not in your own gut. You got to be strong in the grace. Remember the gospel. Remember what he's done. Remember what he's done in other people's lives. Stand in that grace. Remember Jesus. To be strong in the grace, to stand in the grace means you can't stand in your own effort, in your own strength, but it also means to stand in the truth. Jesus is the full embodiment of grace and truth. And here's the reason why we need to do this. Because if we try to love Jesus and love other people when we're not strong in the grace, we will fail to love them with the supernatural love of God. This world, the culture, your friends, your colleagues, your business friends, your teachers, they don't need human love. Even though that's a human need, what they really need is the supernatural agape love of God. The love of neighbor, the love of enemy, where the people of God understand that Jesus died for his enemies. We're going to live for our enemies. We're going to pray for those who persecute them. We're going to pray for our leaders. We're going to do all that we can to make sure that we're not divided within the church. Like they need to see the supernatural love of God, a church that's willing to love those who are unlovely, love all those that the culture would say are taboo, love the ones that seem to cause divisions in the church. You can fill in the blanks there. Supernatural love of God. That's what we need in church. Again, I want to commend you. You guys do that so well. But the reality is we need to be strong in the grace because things aren't going to get easier. And don't be surprised. God gave us the story, said it's going to get harder. Church, like, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but I would say we're not in a post-Christian culture anymore. I think we're entering into an anti-Christian culture. So was Ephesus. They did it. We have the same spirit of God in us. Stand strong in the grace of God. We know the trajectory of all things. And that's why we got to be reminded that we are called here for such a time as this. We are to be the light. We are to be the city on the hill through Jesus. We are to be that kind of salt. Are you strong in the grace of God? Because how we live reveals what we believe and the rest is talk. And that's why Paul was just spending this time with Timothy saying, listen, remember the treasure, remember the gospel, remember how I lived, right? That's where Paul say, imitate me as imitate Christ. Like remember your mother's faith, remember your grandmother's faith, remember them. Hold on to this deposit, Timothy. Stand strong in the grace. 
Because what we're going to see now is this picture of what does it look like when we live out this gospel. Paul gives three metaphors for Timothy. He says it's like people who are living trustworthy lives of the gospel, like they look like this. And he gives them three metaphors. They look like a soldier. They look like a soldier. Verse 2, and what you've heard from me, you pass on to faithful people who will be able to teach others. And then also he goes, and this is kind of like what a reliable person would look like. And this is open to all. I know some people would use this passage and be like, no, nah, this is just for church leadership. No, the tense of this is anyone who would follow Jesus. They ought to look like this. They look like a soldier. They share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. I'm not in the military, never been in the military, never plan on being in the military because I don't have the fortitude to do it. Like I'm the type of guy to be like, don't shave my head, don't do it. And I'm not going to get up when you want me to get up. I'll run when it's convenient for me. Thank you very much. And then I'd probably be the type that would like, you know, go AWOL or something like, that's just too hard. I know people who are in the military. In fact, I even asked uh, Josh Huff and I was like, hey, can you look at my notes? I want to make sure I'm not being a heretic here. Like, let me understand this. Think about the life of a soldier. When they enlist, they immediately surrender rights. They immediately lose in an identity to gain a different identity. If anybody would follow me, says Jesus, deny yourself, carry your cross. A soldier is one who is single-minded, devoted, willing to suffer at all costs, right? They are there. They're part of this collective calling. A soldier does what a soldier does so that civilians do what civilians do. A soldier's aim is to please its master, its, its CEO. Shh. <laughs> a soldier doesn't live to please other people like think about what Paul is saying it's like believer follower of Jesus your life as a follower of Jesus is categorically different than a civilian you are here on purpose you're salt and light you have a mission you've given up something for a greater good and your purpose is to please Jesus not even yourself no soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. That's what, like, I've been convicted on that. And it's not saying that soldiers don't have, so, like, affair, like, you know, concerns of this world. They do. The key word is entangled. It makes me think immediately of Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is like, hey, that's why that song, Jehovah, Jireh, you know, it's just like the birds of the air, right? Like, the, the Father knows what you need, but you, but you, Seek first the kingdom. You soldier, seek first the kingdom. And I asked Josh, I said, as a soldier, when you were in training at boot camp, or whatever, have you ever had to worry once about your provision? Never. Hebrews chapter 12, let us throw aside every weight and sin that entangles. Jesus said, like, you know, there's this seed that grows up amongst the weeds and, and the life gets choked out by the concerns of this world. No soldier gets entangled in the affairs of a civilian life. So you've got to ask yourself the question, how am I living? Do I live a life that reflects a soldier or a civilian? Are you the soldier or the civilian? 
Then he goes on to the next metaphor. He's like, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I'm like, okay, I sort of get this one. I think I was an athlete. I mean, I played baseball. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm just saying, like, you with me? Like, there's a lot of out-of-shape baseball players. You're like, do you recall? Like, do they train? Like, I remember my baseball coach in college here at Winona State was just like, how you practice is how you play. And I was like, man, I've been good for years. I don't need to practice. And he would make us run and we would just not do it. But it's like, think about it like an Olympian. Think about how much training they have to do. Like how, many, like, how many of you like work out and have to like convince yourself that day to do it? Like that, that's the idea of an athlete. It's like, I, my body doesn't want to do it. My brain doesn't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. Paul would even say, it's like, he, like he doesn't, he's not a man who just randomly throws punches in the air. He's like, I beat my body into submission. Like golling or physical training is of some game, but golliness is great gain. An athlete is single-minded determination. Everything is around this training regimen for that one moment to compete. In fact, what's fascinating here is like when Paul would say an athlete has to compete according to the rules, it's referencing Zeus. And Zeus had this 10-month, like he's real, but Zeus, Zeus apparently brought down a 10-month training regimen that if you were to compete in these Olympic games, you have to follow this training regimen to the letter. And if you were caught finding out that you didn't do it, they would kill you. An athlete has to compete according to the rules. So how does that connect to us? I, I start to immediately think about spiritual formation, spiritual disciplines. Like how, how much time are we like in community praying and reading the word and doing those things? Like, is it like, I'm going to tell you this right now, like one Sunday a week is not, it's, that's going to be tough. Like an athlete, like there's discipline, there's training, there's formation that's all in there. And so I asked the question, like, are you an athlete or are you a spectator? Do you want to watch the match? And then there's the last metaphor, the farmer. To which again, I had to ask some farmers here again, just to remind me. The farmer to me is very convicting because it's like they're hardworking they're persevering, they're, they're long-suffering, and they can do all that they can do. They get everything ready for the harvest. They plant the seeds, do all this stuff, and yet they have no control of the outcome. Like they have zero control of when or how. They can't control the weather. They can't do anything. And so it's like this life of dependence. Like I plant the seed, and I'm going to trust that it's going to happen. It's the long game. It's the suffering. It's the belief that God's word will not return void. Even though you may not reap what you've sowed, other people may do it, but God's word will do what it needs to do. Same thing in your own lives. Like how many times have you prayed, God, do this, change this. You pray for other people. You're like, it's not happening. And how easy it is just to go, Tah. no, be the farmer. Keep sowing. Keep sowing because you will reap. It will happen. God's word will not return void. Be like the farmer. And the, the challenge on this is what we all wrestle with in our fast-paced instant gratification world. We prefer consumerism. 
We don't like long-suffering, patience, and all that stuff. So are you the farmer or the consumer? Verse 7. It's almost as if Paul's going to say here, Timothy, I know you don't get it. Like, I know you might not understand this or maybe even agree with it, but think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So here's how I want to end. Because I don't want you to go, man, I fall short here. I'm not the athlete. I'm not the, I'm not the farmer. I'm not the soldier. Oh, I just... <sighs> what I want you to do is discern what the Holy Spirit is stirring in you. What do you want? What do you want? What does your spirit want? To be the athlete, to be the soldier, to be the farmer. Your flesh doesn't want it, but the spirit does. But before we can move into that area, remember the gospel. Remember Jesus. Hold on to it. Hold on to it with all that you have. I'm going to ask that the worship team to come up. And what I want us to do before we sing is just to think through how this might apply. Obviously, I already talked a lot about remembering. It's important. But as you remember, certain things will start to surface in your own life. And Paul talks in 2 Timothy chapter 20 about how we remember the gospel. And sometimes in that process, we can give glory and praise and thanks. But then there's moments where like, I need to do some repentance. And what Paul says here in 2 Timothy chapter 20 through 26 is rather astounding. And we don't, we don't like this because we would rather just hear all the, the grace part. But this is grace. Make no mistake. This is grace. He's like, in a house, there are some vessels of honorable use and dishonorable use, right? Like, make yourself usable, become like something more honorable. Like in other words, like, yeah, you, you have this option, but become honorable, become usable, like repent. And that's why in the next verse, he says, flee, flee from youthful passions and lust in the sense, run away from them. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you so much that he died for you and his spirit is always there to convict us of truth and righteousness so that one, we can remember how much he loves us, but two, so that we can experience more of him. But then as you read on, he's like, as you continue to do this, you might rescue some who are caught in the snare of the devil. Beautiful. So let's spend some time in worship and first and foremost, remembering who Jesus is, remembering that he's king of kings and he's high and above and he came down to earth for you, to die for you, to live for you. And as we're in this moment, as we give him glory, honestly, that's some of the best moments to repent because you're repenting with your eyes off of you and onto him. Oh, Jesus, I love you. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness, God. And that frees us up to live like a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. The Atacama Desert has one thing that's absolutely phenomenal. They have this thing called the super bloom. 
and every eight to 10 years or so, it'll rain and it will get enough rain to do something miraculous. Because underneath the soil in that desert are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of wildflower seeds waiting for rain. And when it rains, miles of this desert that was dead and just hopeless and barren pops into life. And I saw this picture of kids running in the economy desert and I'm like, yes, Jesus in our time, yes. I want my kids to know the kingdom. I want our kids and our generations to know that there's a better way. But that, that means that we gotta live a certain way today. And it's through the power of God, yes, it's through Him. And just imagine like if our yes to Jesus and we give ourselves to Him, it's like, what if like that yes becomes the conduit for the rain to fall on this desert? and we see a super bloom happen. That's revival. Not some crazy like mass tent thing. It's no, it's people, one person coming from death to life, revival. Death to life is revival. Jesus brought the gospel to revive lives. Let's be here, church, for the super bloom. Lord, I ask that one, you forgive me for going long. <laughs> but two, Lord, I ask that um, you would take the many words and through your Holy Spirit, you would weave it into our hearts personally, where each one of us needs it and collectively. Lord, I pray that we would remember the gospel. We would remember Jesus we would be in awe that you've entrusted us with this gospel of reconciliation of life and death. You've given us the ability and the joy and the privilege to be people of salt and light. God, forgive us for neglecting that treasure. Forgive us for not understanding that treasure. But God, would you renew that in our hearts? Help us to see it again. Lord, and I ask that you would just do something remarkable, continue to galvanize this church's faith, continue to open their eyes to see Jesus, to be captivated by the love of Jesus so that others, other people would see Jesus. And I ask, Lord, that in Pleasant Valley and through Pleasant Valley and in Winona and around the area that there would be a super bloom because of our yes to you. So Lord, would you be high and exalted in this moment, in this song, would you inhabit our praises and catch us up in the glory of your son, Jesus. In Christ's name.